Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor David Harbour. When David Harbour was growing up in the suburbs of Westchester County, he was a self-described nerdy and intense weirdo who preferred to march to the beat of his own drum. Or as he puts it, I basically felt like an alien growing up. But his self-imposed isolation led him to pursue more solitary, artistic, and creative endeavors. And along the way, he discovered acting. He also discovered drugs and alcohol, vices that nearly killed him. On stage, David's socially off-putting intensity was an asset. It allowed him to explore the dark and complex emotions he was feeling at the time within the structure of a stage. By the time he was 19 and cast as Hamlet in a regional theater production, David had hit his stride. As he tells it, I don't think I've ever been better. I was so fired up and alive, so engaged with the world. Hamlet was just me. All the things Hamlet was feeling were all the things I was feeling. Over the years, David has amassed a large body of work in projects like The Newsroom, Revolutionary Road, Pan Am, and the upcoming Hellboy remake. But his role as Jim Hopper in the beloved Netflix series Stranger Things is by all counts his most indelible role. In large part, David's success on Stranger Things is a result of the humanity he brings to his character, an internally broken leading man that we're all rooting for. Now in his 40s, David came to leading roles late, but with all of that life and career experience, he's bringing much needed nuance to our idea of what it means to be a hero. He explains, one of the traps actors fall into with leading roles is that they think they need to present a strength. But I think most people really want to identify with someone who goes through the same vicissitudes of life and brokenness that we all do. David joins off camera to talk about how a group of industry rejects turned Stranger Things into a massively popular phenomenon, how he dealt with the inner monsters that nearly cost him his life, and why he really doesn't like his face. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, David. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm excited to have you on because I've actually known about you for a while. Um, I mean, I loved uh, the newsroom and Revolutionary Road, and you know, my kids and I, we love Stranger Things, and um, and you were doing Hellboy, mm -hmm. which is crazy. So there's, it's I have a ton of stuff I want to ask you about, but I wanted to start with the fact that this week, as I was just chatting with people in my life and they're asking who's on the show this week and I tell them you there their reaction is oh, I love that guy mm. you know that's nice and, I, and I, a lot of it that comes from stranger things and and I was curious if you noticed or thought of what it is about like that show that engenders that reaction of it's almost like they're not saying I love that guy they're saying oh I know that guy yeah I mean I think there's something super personal about certainly about what I do in that show that I I wanted to do that I achieved in that show that I don't know that I achieved kind of anywhere else in my career um, and I think there's something very personal about the entire show I think there's something vulnerable about it in a very true deep way that touches people I mean I think it's just that it's very good storytelling and I think that it's just that we all it's certainly the first season, and as we go along in different ways, I mean, it's gotten bigger. Yeah. But like certainly in that first season, we were all just kind of putting it on the line. I think because we were all, mm, I don't want to say failures, but we were all 
we had nothing to lose. In like, terms of an ensemble of actors. Yeah, and the showrunners. And the showrunners. I mean, uh, the Duffer brothers, you know, had had a rough road before they got there. And, you know, I've certainly had my ups and downs. And the kids were just a bunch of kids. Sure, yeah. Um, and so we were all kind of like, we may as well just do this thing as hard as we can, sort of. And I think in that way, it required us to be, you know, really messed up in a certain way. I mean, one of the things also that I find about, like, leading men characters, because coming to them sort of too, so late, like, I'm 43 now. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't have a history of playing leading men since I was, like, 22. Which, right. like, I've always been you know, so messed up about. Like, I always wished I was one of those guys who was oh, like... Did. Oh, of course, who was handsome and, you know, charming and Hollywood just, like, embraced them. But that wasn't my path. My path was like, we think you're weird. <laughs> we'll keep you to the side for a while. We'll sort of use you because you're interesting, but we, you, you're kind of too intense. You're, you know, you're not as good-looking as we need you to be. But what it sort of did cultivate in me is, like... What I find interesting about a leading character now more than ever is the idea that that character you have to love because without your love, they won't be okay. Like, I remember seeing it sort of in McConaughey in uh, the first season of True Detective. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, this guy is actually not going to be okay if I don't kind of love him. <laughs> and I think that one of the traps that people fall into as leading men is like you think that you're supposed to present a strength and I think that people don't, they want to see a journey of a character, but I think they really want to see, you know, they want to identify with someone who goes through the same vicissitudes of life and the same brokenness that we all do. Well, sure, like, because they want to feel like, if I was put in those circumstances, I would not be found wanting because I'm as human as him. Like, you're right. Yes, and I can do, take heroic action being just as broken as him or whatever. Right. Um, and I think that what happens, though, is that we, we all get caught up in our own narcissism, and we all want to look attractive, and we all want to seem like a certain way, and we sort of get lost in that path. And it really takes a lot of failure and a lot of brokenness to sort of get to a point where you're like, well... Nobody likes me that much anyway, so I may as well swing for the fences. And I think that's what we had on that, and certainly in that first season, was we were all like, you know, because I've been on so many projects, man, where it's like, you know, even bring up like Revolutionary Road, right? Where yeah. it was like, you know, we were on that project, and I was like number three on the call sheet or something, and I, and and everybody was patting me on the back, being like, oh man, like this is gonna, you know. And then it was like right after it came out, I was back to auditioning. Like it wasn't like nothing changed. I mean, it was like you know. So in that way, it, it's uh, it's just I've been on so many projects where people have been patting themselves on the back as you were making it. And now, and then Planning nothing the comes of it. And nothing comes years of their it. life. So eventually you get to a point where you're like, I may as well just actually play this guy. Because I'm not going to get any work after it. Or I'm not going to, so I'm not going to play the next eight characters. Like I see some performances where actors make where you're like, oh yeah, you're not playing that guy. You're playing, you're a movie star. And this is going to launch you. Right. And I think that we were all like, we're not going to be movie stars. Guys like in my position. So the whole thing had a quality of like, we may as well just play this thing as hard as we can. And and we really went there in a way that I'm very proud of. And I think it really resonated with people. So I genuinely, and it may be like arrogance, but I genuinely think we achieved something 
especially in that first season, that was very unique because it was very personal. And I think we were all working on that level, and it was just this alchemy of things that kind of come together rarely in a career, and you just, it's just magic. You know, what you describe, it is alchemy. It is that idea that, that you don't know why, but certain things just gel. Yeah, and that's the thing. What is that, William... Golding or what? Like, nobody knows anything. And right. that was sort of the thing about Stranger Things, where, like, I actually sent it to a friend of mine uh, to play a certain role in it, and he passed. And uh, there were people who, tons of people who passed on it. Like, nobody thought it was going to be anything. I think were they you were able like, to here's another sci fi show. A few episodes before that whole marketing engine started up. Yeah. I mean, but like, did you again, get a sense, like, oh, yeah, we have something here? Or did you even know? I mean, I. Well, I have two feelings about that. Like, I did because I loved it so much, but also the things that I loved um, haven't always been successful. Like, I've loved a lot of things in this world that people don't really respond to. Um, And the other thing is I couldn't get past the fact that I have real problems looking at myself on screen, and I tend to... Still, to this day. Yeah. Stranger Things is sort of the best. Um, I can watch it. But I still tear myself apart. And it's mainly just in terms of, like, I hate my face. <laughs> so it's like, what I, you know, there's a lot of that in Stranger Things, unfortunately. So, you, uh, so I tend to, like, get lost in that. Let me tell you something about your face. <laughs> your face is, I envy your face. Because when I look at my own face in the mirror, I see sort of, like, this mix of who I still was as a kid, like young and vulnerable. And, yeah. and I see you and you've got this strong forehead and straight <laughs> nose and you look like manly and, and take charge. Okay. Like, Thank like, you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's always the thing of like the grass is always greener, right? Like I've always, for, for example, like I'll expose to my own, but my own face has been, you know, I've viewed movie stars throughout when I was growing up as like having these... Uh, big open eyes and like these big you know like these big watery faces that sort of you know show so much emotion so much color right and i'm a bit of a stiff like you know and i'm and i'm a bit as you say like hidden by this brow and these things that i've i've come to realize i can work with and use in a certain way but i've never i've never thought i fit the mold of someone who should be photographed the other thing about uh like, you know, real movie stars that I've seen in my time is like, they never take a bad picture. This is a fun exercise. You watch the show and you, oh, you pause, pause it? the video and you watch like Tom Cruise or these other people and there's never a bad moment. Like you pause it anywhere and they're always like got their eyes open and they always look certain cool. And and me, like anytime you pause, change things, I'm like this. I'm like, <laughs> like my eyes are half closed and I'm drooling and I'm like, so that uh, I've always had that. Um, fear that I, you know, my face just doesn't photograph well, and it doesn't like, you know, do that thing. But it's good. Thank you for for giving me the masculine comment, face comment. Well, it's it's also funny. I think that we all feel this way, and and I'll give you an example, which is I photographed Tom Cruise several times throughout my career. Okay. And I remember when he came in for Esquire, and I must have had some look on my face when I met him that he interpreted it as worry. Because he said, don't worry, I promise I'm going to go in there and I'm going to come out looking like Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and he yes. had, maybe he had a zit even, or something. I don't know Tom what it was. Tom Cruise but has to look like Tom Cruise. He was That's very amazing. worried about it. Yeah. And I thought, 
I thought that was my worry. There I was go. supposed to make him look good. There he go. probably pauses Tom Cruise movies and goes, oh, and finds God. the angle. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, folks, let's stop the conversation for a little bit and talk about this week's sponsor, Quip. One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. Yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers, and it was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Now, I'm a dad. I've got kids that are right at that you-need-to-brush-your-teeth-longer age. And since we started using Quip at our house, the brushing has gone a lot better. Not only that, but I love Quip, and you guys know I've talked about it on the show for a long time. Well, here are the details. Quip is a beautifully designed, compact toothbrush. It travels well. It works better than other electric toothbrushes because you don't have to plug it in. Every three months, they send you a battery and a new brush head, and it just works. And it has sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums because some people brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. Also, there's a two-minute electric timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. It also has this really cool cover that mounts to your mirror, and it has this crazy adhesive that keeps working no matter how many times you use it. I take Quip whenever I travel, and it's so great to get the toothbrush off the hotel bathroom counter and up into its sanitary little cover. That's one of my favorite things about the brush. You know, for years I would travel and I would use some hotel toothbrush or some inferior brand, and I would leave my electric toothbrush at home because it was too bulky. But with Quip, all those problems are solved. And the best thing is the brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. Because three out of four of us use bristles that are old, worn out, and ineffective, and probably full of germs. Do you know that Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews? That's right. It's kind of the perfect toothbrush. So if you haven't tried it yet and you've listened to this show, there's no reason not to try it. And I personally love Quip because my kids brush longer, our toothbrushes are cleaner, they travel well, and the vibration feels like just the right amount. Quip has done it. They've just built a better toothbrush. So you have to try it out. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash off-camera right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash off-camera. So try it out, send me an email, let me know if you like it. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to brush your teeth. Now back to the show. How many rules do we give ourselves on a daily basis of, this is the lane I'm allowed to work in, this is how my family sees me, this is how, like, and as an actor, I'm curious if there was a time when you sort of had these unconscious rules that you were going by. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you bring up like a fascinating point. The idea that so much of our lives are arbitrary accumulations of a set of rules that dictate our, first of all, our behavior or, and I feel like in a way, in some ways that's getting worse. Really? Uh, yeah, like in the culture, I feel like, um, I feel like the tribalism is really happening and the cultural signaling is really happening where you have to identify with a group and if you don't identify with that group or if you cross the party lines of that group, 
you are seen as a traitor and ousted. And I mean, my whole thing has been inclusion and incorporation of what I would call perversion. I don't mean it sexually, but I mean it in terms of like, I'm a kid who lives in the East Village. Like, uh, and I came from Westchester County. So I lived a certain definition right. of a life that was you a suburban. You crossed a line. And I, well, yeah, and I went into the East Village because it was a bunch of freaks who thought differently and were weirdos, and true weirdos. And so I just want people to feel more of that freedom that their character identities aren't necessarily defined by their emotions or their thoughts. There's something that's intrinsic to the reptilian brain and to the unconscious that is always going to be an uncontrolled animal that's going to feel certain things that are irrational and that are not okay. And whenever we don't allow that to happen, I think it's going to seep out into other ways. Whereas, like, there could be a restructuring of those sort of ideas where we allowed more creativity and more inclusion yeah. to these people. But what we do is, and I think as a society we're doing it more and more, is we're excluding people for being weird in all sorts of ways. And so, yeah, for me, I mean, it sort of worked the opposite. Like, I was kind of excluded for a long time, and then I... I feel like I did this very personal thing where I let go of a lot of the laws that I had for myself, which was that, first of all, that like actors have to be, if they're leading men especially, they have to be like in shape and they gotta like go to the gym and they gotta have like some abs. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna let go of that because this dude's a drinker and like I'm just gonna let him be, you know, what he is. I'm gonna play this character as opposed to the leading man role I'll get after I'm the lead in the Netflix Stranger Things thing, right? So I just let him be what he was and I, and I let him be kind of gross, and, and that was very liberating to actually play, and I actually achieved success as a result of it. So that's, um, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that's like, what I find I was able to let go of these laws, and they liberated me. Right. And I, I wonder if it's true for other people as well. Well, it makes you want to experiment and go, what are the rules am I living under that I haven't explored the other side because it doesn't seem like it would bear fruit? Right. And I was curious if there were periods of time where you didn't work for months at a time and what your thought process turned into based upon that. Like our own little, you know, the research we do on ourselves and this means this. And yeah, I mean, I think that what, what does sort of come up and I'm very leery about talking about this because I don't want to... Like, one of the things I hate is, like, the secret. Yes. But unfortunately, even though I hate it, I feel like it somewhat happens. Whereas I do feel like the more responsibility I take for what I want to put out in the world, the more responsibility the world gives me to do that in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? Like, you kind of get what you deserve and not what you desire. So in these times of, like, not working, um, there were... There were times when it was a prison and I was like uh, kind of, you know, victimized and tried to do the right thing, like get in shape or like try to adhere to right. the thing. And there were other times when I chose the opposite response, which was like, so I can't get work, but like, so why am I an artist? Like, what do I have to say as an artist? And like, why don't I go in there and just see if I can create some kind of something to say as an artist? And I, and when I did that, I found that this thing, thing started to come to me. But it's a, it's a hard position when you're like not able to make money or whatever to be yeah. able to actually have that agency to go, this is on me. Well, like, what I'm I hear you saying inside. is that on one hand, your brain could very e easily construct a logic around the idea that the business is statistically really hard yeah. and it's arbitrary versus I, I will, like you said, I, I'll deserve it because I'll take more responsibility for it. 
Yeah, and also I feel like that lifts everybody up. Like the cool thing about that responsibility, taking that responsibility is, you know, because people say like, well, you can't be a good actor if the script is no good. And you're like, actually, if you start to become a better actor, the writers will get better, directors will get better because they'll see what you're doing. Like it's a ripple effect that starts to affect everybody else and the stories you tell start to get richer and, you know, the entire the entire environment changes. It is the JFK quote of like, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do. Like, yeah. what is your stone that you're dropping in in the in the lake, and how is that going to ripple? And so I find that in those times of when I've had to either leave the business or whatever, like when I take that time and I go like, what can I actually bring to this that is going to be unique and rich and something that where I complain that I don't see these stories, how am I going to bring that? That's always it always leads to more fruitful life and it always leads to a more fruitful artistic life. Well, it seems like the struggle would always come down to in those periods of inactivity, how do I practice my craft when yeah. I'm not getting any, you know, yeah. like... I go to acting class. You do? Yeah, I still go. And what are you looking for at this point That's when you... That's a good you... question. <laughs> <laughs> Sheer frustration. No, I, uh, I mean, I, I... Again, like I'm looking to... Um, You know, I'm looking to become something great. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that James Joyce can write Ulysses like without working super hard. And you're right. Like, as an actor, you don't get, you don't get to just sit down and write. So what, what can you do? Like, I need to put in hours. Like, I need to actually, if you wanna become a bodybuilder, like you have to spend hours in the gym training. And you know, back in the the 60s and 70s, they had the actor's studio, and they still have the actor's studio. It's sort of become a shell of what it was under Lee Strasberg. Mm -hmm. It's a different thing. But, you know, there are various places in New York that still maintain that idea of, like, this actor's studio idea, which is that I can go to the studio and, let's say in the, you know, 70s, and Al Pacino can be there, and, like, some dude straight out of drama school can be there, and we can both work on scenes together, and we can both sort of exercise muscles that we feel are weak in us. But I think it's always having that bar, that something that Ellen Burstyn called like the divine dissatisfaction of the artist, right? Which is that you always think every day, you're like, oh yeah, that was pretty good. But you're always like, I wonder if I could do that. I would think that when you get to a certain level in your career where you are now, finding that group of players that, for lack of a better term, that can be a worthy foil or a worthy scene partner to be able to do what you're trying to do might be a difficult thing. I mean, one of the interesting things is like, let's say you work with like non-performers or let's say you work with like young actors. The, or let's say this, and not to equate myself with like um, this is going to sound wildly, but I don't equate myself with Marlon Brando. But let's say Marlon Brando working with Vivian Lee in uh, Streetcar Named Desire, right? Right. Uh, Marlon Brando is like, you know, of course, sort of acknowledges one of these great, great actors. And Vivian Lee is a bit of a, you know, she's a bit of a star and does her thing. But it's not really, I would say, like acting of a certain level. But Marlon like works with her in a certain way that he acknowledges and sort of takes in what she's giving him and works with it in a different way. I don't think Marlon Brando's complaining that she's not a good enough actor to work with him. He's incorporating what she's doing and it makes him a better actor as a result of it. And I think that's the thing where it's not about judging people on, a, on right, levels right. in that way. It's more like, because it isn't sport, it's art artistry, which means that like it's different than sport. Like in sport, I don't know that Pete Sampras could play with like, 
you know, a junior high tennis. I don't know that it would give him value, right, right. but art has so much richness beyond sport. It's not a simple competitive thing of like physical strength or whatever. It's like you actually bring something as a human being that's so unique and the energies that you bring could be something where I could learn something as well. So, right. you know. Well, it's also funny, I think, when you see a child actor that's good. Yeah. And you're on a show where you're surrounded, especially first season, with a lot of very young actors. Yeah. Because I would think you watch a kid and, and you go, oh, they're not making c- conscious choices. They are, they're somewhere yeah. between yeah. You know, pure instinct and, and their gut and, and yeah. no experience being like, they don't even know to ask the question. Yeah. Of, and I was curious what happens when you see a performance by a kid on your show that maybe puts into question all of the, all of yeah. the things you're doing, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's something like uh, throughout history, like there was this thing, I think Stanislavski talking about, where it's like this two things called like the flower of youth and the flower of craft. And like it changes around the age of 18. Right. Where it's like you just have something. Because I remember when I was like in high school or even when I was like, even when I was... Uh, doing the regional theater when I was like 1920 I played Hamlet and like I don't think I've ever been better like really? I was because you're just so fired up and just so alive and the world is such a sparkling you're just so engaged with the world like if I were to play Hamlet now if I wasn't too old and tired I would uh, I would highlight the things about Hamlet that are different than me right so and I don't think a child can do that like, I think that when I was 20 and I was playing Hamlet, like, Hamlet just was me. And it was just, you know, all the things he was feeling were all the things. And that's why yeah. I, would, I would be more structured in terms of how I, how I approached a character and how I sort of painted them in a certain way, whereas my kid response was much more passionate. But there's, in terms of attractiveness to an audience, I don't know that what I do here is more attractive than this. And I don't, I don't even know that it has more value. I just know that it... It's where my path is taking me, and I think it's of interest. But there's things, you know, for example, that first season especially, Finn in the show, yeah, he's such an alive kid, and he's so unselfconscious that he just, his body just, like, moves around sometimes independently. Even his face, like, moves independently of, like, what he's doing. And I can't do that. And I don't know that he you could can't consciously that construct and, it. You right. can't, like, make it up. It's just something that, because he's a child and because he actually is going through hormonal and body, doesn't really understand his body, it's just revealed. And it's so good. And it's like, I, you know, I, I don't know that, like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, Meryl Streep, like, I don't know that they could accomplish that. Well, it is that thing, like, the self-awareness that is critical for us as adults to get through the day is such an art killer. Yes, absolutely. You have to be in touch with like instinct and, and yeah. things where you can shed and get to the layers of what a person is really doing. Yeah. Do you sometimes because I think this would, this would define how hard you would work as an actor is if you stopped and considered the enormity of choices that yeah. are possible to make. Yeah, that's insane. A hundred different ways to do any scene yeah, or a thousand insane. different ways. So the thing is, like, the blank page. Yeah. Initially, it becomes overwhelming because you don't know what you're going to write or do on that blank page. And then I think as you mature, it becomes overwhelming because there's just so many things you could do. You're just like, I could, you know, I could spend my entire life on this blank page yeah. and just perfect this one page. And it's funny, like, that's kind of the thing that I, I, I've done. I, I sound like, again, so egotistical, but I have done two plays with Pacino, 
And like they're plays that he comes back to over and over again. Like he did Merchant of Venice. Yes. I did that on Broadway with him. And he also did Glengarry Glen Ross. And he works on them over and over and over again because I think he does have that thing where he's just constantly searching for, because to him it's like that fascination with the blank page. It's like I could do anything with Shylock or I could do anything right. with Shelley Levine from Glengarry. I could continue to work on him forever. Yeah, you can make yourself crazy. Yeah, you can make yourself crazy. And you're right, a kid just kind of does it. Yeah. And so there is a certain freedom and wonderment in that. Hey folks, let's take a little break in the conversation so I can tell you about one of our sponsors this week, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. And what HelloFresh has done is made home-cooked meals simple. They make conquering the kitchen a reality with deliciously simple recipes. And they do all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping so you can focus on a healthier you and a happier family. And the best thing about HelloFresh is everything is laid out so logically and simply that you kind of can't mess it up. They send fresh pre-measured ingredients and an easy-to-follow six-step picture recipe card delivered to your door each week in a special insulated box. All meals come together in 30 minutes maximum, and they call for less than two pots and pans, and they require minimal cleanup. So you can make family dinners fuss-free with HelloFresh's picky eater, kid-tested and approved family plan recipes. HelloFresh has different plans to choose from each week. You can choose classic, veggie, and family, with the option to switch between for when your tastes change. You can enjoy fun menu features with HelloFresh's dinner to lunch, 20-minute meals, gourmet, and one-pot wonders, among more. And I think the key to what HelloFresh has done is that they've created enough variety that it always feels like something new and fresh and exciting. You can get out of that recipe rut and start cooking outside of your comfort zone by discovering new delicious recipes. Last night we tried the crispy hot honey chicken and it was a big hit. And that's so nice as a parent when all the food gets eaten and everyone seems happy and there's not a big mess to clean up at the end. I had a great experience with HelloFresh, and I think it's one of those things that until you try it, you don't realize how it can expand your experience in the kitchen and give more variety to your dining experience with your family. So here's the deal you're going to get from HelloFresh by listening to Off Camera. You can get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh just by going to HelloFresh.com slash OffCamera80 and enter promo code OffCamera80. That's H-E-L-L-O. F-R-E-S-H dot com slash off camera eight zero and enter promo code off camera eight zero. So try HelloFresh, send me an email, tell me what you think of it, and tell me what your favorite recipe is. Now back to the show. The prep on Stranger Things, did you work really hard on that prep? Yes. And to what end? Okay, so it's like, for me it's like always... It starts with like deeply psychological kind of secrets is what I call them. Okay. Where it's like, you know, you start to look at the behavior, much more the behavior than what the character says, more what the character doesn't say, what they... Um, there was a fascinating thing about him too early on where he brings up his daughter to this science teacher in the woods as he's walking. And then he says that she moved away to her mom's, you're not going to get her. And then someone else says that she's dead. And I was like, why would a dude bring that up to a guy? Like, and then lie about it? Like, what is, there were these little sort of secrets that I find really interesting. Like, when Winona comes to ask, when Joyce comes to ask about Will, she says, like, you know, the kids made fun of him. They called him up, they called him up. And he goes, was he? 
And you're like, why? And it's it's funny and it's horrible, but it's like, why would you do that, man? Like, what are you doing? Like, and so these little moments to me are much more important than like. And so in that way, you start to construct the. You know, I mean, he's clearly doing that because he lost a daughter, and because when someone loses their child, on some level, he wishes the world felt the pain that he did, and he's angry. But he'll right. joke with you and talk about coffee and contemplation. Like, so there's all these layers that you like start to add in, right? And those layers require a lot of work uh, investigatively uh, on the page, and then it requires a lot of personal work, like what makes me angry or where do I hide or how do I hide and then it also requires things like um, how, how come it crosses over to personal work because you can't do it as a one-to-one -one. like there is something where I there's a funny thing where like he's he's retired from acting so I could talk about him <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis who I've always like loved the yeah. way that he works is I don't know that he would call it method, but it's it's the what I consider the bullshit idea of method, which is that you, you know, he played that the thing the guy who got thrown in prison, the father. Thing, yes, yes, in and the name actually, of the father. You know, they torture him and they leave him in a room for like days and days or something without, and they play music and and they do the thing that they where they torture you, and he did that. Like he actually spent like five days in a prison with them waking him up all the time, dehydrated, like, because he wanted to experience that. And I was like, I mean, that's amazing, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's also like kind of useless because like his experience of that is not the character's experience of that. Because like, the character comes from a different background. And, and different the character history. experiences things differently. Like, like if, if I'm a hardened gangster, right, and I'm in prison, for six months. If I actually go spend six months in prison, I'm a wimpy, like, dude, from, <laughs> yeah. you know, actor, theater, dude. So, like, my reaction to prison is going to be different to the, the gangster's reaction to prison. Right. And so the one-to-one -one doesn't actually work, whereas the analogy is what works, right? So the analogy is, you know, prisoner, a gangster is to prison as David is to what? So let's say, you know, Hopper is, has, his daughter died of cancer, but, like, what does that really mean to Hopper? And you have some vague sense of that, and then you personally go in and go like, um, get more specific about what, you know, what that is to me. Because it's my blood, it's my flesh that's gonna react. It's not, Hopper doesn't really exist except on a page and right. in your mind. You have to engage in an imaginative reality that you, to me, I think the best ones are when you have personal experience of it. So like, you know, it's something that they call sense memory in the method or something, where it's like you um, can sensorially ask about experiences that you might have in terms of a relation to a character. But so when I get um, mad in Stranger Things or something, it's, you know, it's, I'm not mad about Will Byers. I have no relationship to Will Byers. Like, and that's why the, there's funny things that always happen in, in movies where people are like, okay, I'm going to really get you into it. We're going to show you... We're gonna show you the video of Superman fighting the guy, and you're like, I got no relationship to Superman <laughs> fighting the guy. Put a picture of my mom up there. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then I'll get, or put a picture of something that like, actually will. But the idea that you can actually engage in emotional reality is a bit, to me, it's a bit of a red herring because you, what you actually want is you want to analogously, kind of trick the audience 
into believing that I'm getting upset for Will Byers when really I'm I'm dealing with my own instrument. And the way, but the way that that has to come out again has to be filtered through characters. So like David Harbour might cry about something, whereas uh, Jim Hopper will punch somebody. So it starts with kind of this base psychology to me, which is like, who really is this guy deep down? Who he he lies to himself about, right? Like we all lie to ourselves. Like yes. I lie to myself about cer- certain ways that I am. Like I think I'm a good guy, and like if you were to actually just be a detective and watch me as a fly on the wall, you might see certain things that I do to friends or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. Like, I have to believe that I'm a good guy as I walk around the world, but that's my own personal thing. Whereas, like, you might see that, oh, no, David wants control or he wants, you know, to feel smarter than people or whatever it is that you, or he, you know, he's arrogant. Whatever it is that you would define as my character. That's what I investigatively do. And then I construct his psychology around who he thinks he is in the world and how his shtick is in the world. And then through that, you get real character, which is like Jim Hopper's like a man. Like, you know, he punches things. He doesn't cry. So whether whether I feel sadness or he is a big baby, he still behaves in this way. I'll tell you, when you describe this to me, the devil is in the details because you could probably get to the the blanket statement of Jim Hopper's a man and he punches people instead of cries. You can get there pretty quick. Yeah. But if you don't back it up with all the work you're talking about doing, it's the difference between a two-dimensional performance and a three-dimensional performance. We've all seen the version where someone has made, has figured out that this guy punches people yeah. instead of cries. But they haven't figured out the lies that he's told himself right. and they haven't figured out and where you know it what? came from. And this that's is the where thing they... that, and that's, this is the thing that to me, it's so much work that doesn't get seen. Yeah. And that's why I have so many, even friends of mine who are like, why you do all that? And it's like, because you gotta do that work so that in the one, and you don't even show it or anything. You just do, it's the iceberg. And then you just see this, but you feel it. That is why I do it, is because I want people to fall in love with Jim Hopper and need him, need him to save Will Byers. So that when they're watching the show, they're just like, like, you know, they're just so sucked in and they're like, oh my God, if that kid dies, like that guy is going to die. And I, so I need to personalize it to such a degree that you feel like David Harbour's not going to be okay. Because you'll see it on him. And, and I think that's... You know, that's one of the things, that, again, about leading men is I, I want to, to really go on a, a journey with someone. You need to feel like they're not going to be okay without your attention. Do you think that your lack of experience as a leading man before this show was an actual asset? Yeah, it helps me a lot. Like, I think there's, a, there's an idea of leading men nowadays. In general, I find them going more and more towards this superhero idea of, like, capability and strength. And, like, for me, leading men were like Walter Matthau. Like schlubby Walter Matthau, who kills the bad guy. That to me is a much more interesting journey because you're like, you're like, there's no way Walter Matthau is gonna be able to like save this. Like, there's no way Walt. And that to me is something that I love about leading characters. You know, if, right. if, if Thor kills the bad guy, you're like, well, it's Thor, man. No, like, dude's Thor's like, gonna fucking kill the bad guy. Yeah. Whereas like, if that schlubby dude is gonna able to best the bad guy, there's real drama in that. Like, I want to feel like. That guy and I are the same guy. And then I go on the journey and I watch him or her take an amazing action. And I go like, I could do that in my life. Even though I'm not capable or I'm sad or I'm, I'm broken. Like I can actually be heroic. 
And that to me is the true power of the medium, as opposed to being like, oh, that guy's awesome. Like, I like that too, but it's a little thinner to me than actually being invested. Hey folks, I want to stop the conversation for a minute and talk to you about this week's sponsor, DoorDash. You know, if you're like me, you sometimes get so involved in whatever project you're doing that all of a sudden you notice that you haven't eaten for hours and your stomach is rumbling and you can't make a great decision on what to eat. I don't know if that happens to you, but I get so hungry I can't even think straight. If that sounds familiar to you and you're sitting there wondering what you're going to eat for dinner tonight, DoorDash is the answer. With DoorDash, you don't need to get up from the couch to get a meal cooking. DoorDash connects you to all your favorite restaurants in your city, and ordering is so easy. You just use the DoorDash app and choose whatever you want to eat, and your Dasher will bring it right to you, wherever you are. Not only is that burger place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities and all 50 states across the United States and Canada. You can order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. So don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code CAMERA. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter the promo code CAMERA. So try out DoorDash. It's a great way to get a meal quickly, discover restaurants in your neighborhood that you didn't know about, and it'll stop you from becoming hangry. No one wants that. Try DoorDash. Now back to the show. Do you enjoy the journey of having to turn that character on a page into a three-dimensional person by exploring your own, you know, uh, uncomfortable parts of your personality. I guess what I'm asking is, why do you think you picked acting as your vehicle for trying to understand life? Yeah, I mean, I have a very clear answer to that. Well, thank God. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, part of it is that I just can't do anything else. So part of it was like, I can't really paint, I can't really draw. But like acting was just something that came kind of naturally to me. I'm very fascinated by people and I'm fascinated by how they express themselves and how they don't express themselves, you know, what and the lies that they tell. And as I say, the construction of character, like the things they inherit truly are sort of and the things that they put on or believe themselves to be. And I mean, it's funny, like as I go along now, this is sort of a weird tangent, but like I don't know which one is really us. What do you mean? I mean, like there's people that believe like in vino veritas, right, which is like when I'm drunk, I tell you the truth. I tell you how I feel. And then there's people that believe that the conscious choices that you make are who you are. Like what determines character? Is it the thing that your conscious mind wants to do? Or is it the thing that your conscious, unconscious mind? Because I don't believe, I think believe people have monstrous unconsciouses. Sure. And they're violent and controlling and strange and... You know, and I don't know that that's necessarily them. Like, and I feel like I got sober, and I don't feel like I was more, I feel like I'm more of a person in terms of the conscious choices that I make, as opposed to the things I did when I was drinking. I don't know that that's really me. But then, then we get into this whole thing of like, what is character? Like, who are people? And I, I was always interested in that growing up, in terms of my suburban upbringing in Westchester County, where there's a lot of believing yourself to be a certain thing. 
right. and a lot of societal behavior that is sanctioned and that isn't sanctioned. There's a lot of law up there, whereas like in the East Village, there's much less law. Oh, yeah. Like you can be as weird as you want to be, but up there you can't. And so that's where it started to gestate is this idea that like I, you claim one thing, but I perceive a different thing. And you claim to be friends with this person, but I see you subtly like making fun of them or right. I see your hatred of them. And so I like these old ideas of, you know, our unconscious behaving in a certain way and our conscious mind trying managing to... Managing it. Yeah, managing it or, yeah. or controlling it or whatever, yeah. I mean, the weird thing about, and I think the reason you get drawn to acting partially, or I get drawn to acting partially, is just that I sort of believe in the plasticity of character. I believe in the plasticity of self. I don't necessarily believe in self. But did I, you not go through a period when you were, when you defined yourself a certain way and, yeah, and you had to fight against that? No, of course, of course. I mean, I was, you know, in school I was very, you know, I was kind of nerdy and uh, kind of unpopular, and I was very intense. Were you the kids on Stranger Things? Were you sort of that? Yeah, I was Will Byers. You I were? I mean, yeah. So, so was, you, you, you would rather follow your interests rather than a popular crowd? or You, you were the kid that wanted to... I, I would, but I also would be very angsty about that. I mean, you still have emotions about the fact that you're an outcast, but you still can't. I just couldn't veer away from that. Like, I couldn't, I actually couldn't do the thing that the popular kids did. Like, there was a certain, at least what I perceived as a certain, I studied it, like, like I studied anything, but like, I perceived a certain kind of, not aloofness, but a certain ease with life. Like, there was a certain, like, whatever quality, where I was just always like, well, what do you mean, whatever? Like, do you want to, you want to hang out? Or like, and so that intensity <laughs> yeah. in itself was seen as, you know, not part of what we do. And so in that way, I couldn't uh, shake that intensity. And so I sort of found my own way with that intensity to, uh, you know, being drawn to, to theater or whatever it was, and even nerdier pursuits like Dungeons and Dragons. Like, I played all that stuff that the kids played. And, um, and then, you know, even in terms of, like, literature and art in a certain way, like, it just kind of led me down that path as opposed to this path of more, like, sports and kind of group activities and things like that like it was very singular solo like I could read on my own I could go to museums on my own I could have a small crew and do so there's less like. pressure when you could pursue those kinds of things rather than having to be in a social situation yeah and I could yeah. be more imaginative like I I spent a lot of time alone I, I enjoyed being alone I didn't need because I could create a world where I had friends I could you know, envision, I could create my own space as opposed to, you know, having to be on a team. Right. So when did alcohol enter the picture and was alcohol sort of a way to, uh, to make those, those social things easier? Basically, I felt a little bit like an alien growing up, like I was different and human beings were different than me. Oh, you did. Oh, you, yeah, you, yeah. You felt like they've all got something. Right. Or figured yeah, out something. figured that, it out that I don't. I don't understand why we're doing this thing, like why we're running around doing things and like, you know. I mean, You were questioning the entire fabric that was holding but society But honestly, it's together. still sort of confusing to me. Yeah. I'm like, we have major problems, like the, and like climate change, for example. And, sure. we, and we're just still like, you know, 
flying airplanes and eating meat and stuff. Like, I'm still just confused that, like, nobody's kind of stopping. Like, why don't we all just stop and, like, even just pray or whatever? Like, why don't we just take a day off of everything? But, like, there, there are things that I'm just confused by human beings and, like, and even the rushing around. Like, I live in New York and people are always, like, rushing around doing things. And, and it's funny to kind of view it from the outside and go, like, where's everybody going? Like, why are we all, like, running yeah. so fast? Because like, I have my life, man. Like, well. But I guess I had more time to kind of view it from the outside, and I always felt like human beings were, like, a weird thing. So I had a couple different outlets. Like, I had um, creativity, like theater, which was a liberating, wonderful thing where I could invest all this energy where I felt too intense and I could do this thing. And then I had, like, alcohol and drugs where I could be, like, just, like, oblivion, what I call, like, non-being. How did you it's discover a, them? I started like in high school, I, I kind of through my friends, and then like I had a couple bad kid friends. And, like, yeah. we, would, we would go out by because there's suburbs too, which like I don't know if you've ever seen the ice storm. Oh yeah. So like the the thing is like the distance between houses are so great, and like kids are left alone in these big houses, and so we would like, you know, whatever you steal like a bottle of, and there was like a a place in in like Mount Kisco or something that had like. The guy would sell underage kids, like, and we had money, like, so we would just get, and we'd just buy, like, good stuff, too. And, and you had a full beard at, like, 14. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we'd just go out by the river and just get, and we'd go out by these, like, reservoirs or, like, lakes in the woods and just get drunk. And then you found out that, like, oh, this, this helps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the answer. I mean, oh, for a lot of years, it was the answer. See, I think that's interesting because I didn't have that. And I always have been curious about when it's the answer, if you don't see, like, the end of the road on that. You know what I mean? Or if you see no, it, you No, you don't, don't care. see the end of the road. <laughs> well, a little bit of both, actually, yeah. Because I remember coming into, um, into New York and making... I had this big joke about being an alcoholic where like people would be like, you're an alcoholic. And I'd be like, I know. Like, eh. I'd be like, all my idols are alcoholics. Like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm an alcoholic. Or like, I remember going to like a, I went to like a dinner party with like all these like young professional, you know, like, and they were like, you, and there's this one woman who was talking to me and she was like, so you drink and you smoke and you, she's like, how can you be happy? And I was like, who's happy? <laughs> And, like, that was sort of my philosophy was, like, you know, I was just super angry. And I was, like, and I guess that's the thing even about the law thing that I'm still angry about today. But, like, this idea where it's just, like, I'll deconstruct you. It's not a question of, like, uh, I still do it occasionally where it's, like, you know, I'll meet guys that are very kind of straight-laced or something. And I'll feel like I have to go in because it's not a dick measuring contest, but it's more like a, I want to prove to you that both our dicks are meaningless. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want to, totally. I want, I, and I feel you doing this thing where you're like, I have money and I have power. And I'm like, I have money, I have power. Like, we're going to die. And like, let me just fart and shit all over this conversation. <laughs> There's just something in me that wants to be this kid that wants to like tear down uh, this thing. And so alcohol was a great. Because after a, a few drinks, you're like, you can just let that guy out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And not only can you let him out, but he's kind of the life of the party, too. Right? Like, for a while, at least, he was super charming and fun, and, like, people loved him. And then, of course, it turns, and he's, you know, just the worst guy. So you have to get sober. <laughs> or, and and or you got die. sober pretty young. I did, yeah, yeah. I how, did, how did you, like, it seems like you had this giant education in such a short period of time of, I have to fix this, and I was curious if that was because you had realized your 
your path or what you wanted and it was getting in the way of what you wanted? Like what, a little what do you bit. think made you stop? It was more just that I lost everything. Like I, um, Oh, you did. I mean, I was practically homeless. Like how old I, were you when you, when you, I was 24 uh, when I got drinking. sober. Um, but you know, I came out of school and I had wanted to be, you know, it's a funny thing too with the hubris of youth and, and of me in particular, like I came out of school thinking that I would come to New York and New York would be like, oh, now we understand, like welcome. And they, New York was like, what? Like, and I, and I was a big failure early on with like some, I had a theater company, I had all these artistic pretensions and I basically wound up being, not being able to make any money, not, people not liking anything that I did and just being, you know, practically kicked out of my apartment, unable to support myself, unable to hold down like a waiting tables job. Uh, my friends all started to abandon me because I was a very angry and, and horrible human being to be around. Um, and then finally like my girlfriend, who I never thought would leave me, like left me. And so I just got to this point and I was about to be kicked out of my apartment. What were your I, parents in all this? Uh, they were like helping, like my mom was helping me like on the down low, like kind of giving me money, but they were kind of getting sick of me too. I mean, you know, it was awful. It's that awful thing that you hear every alcoholic talk about. And if they don't talk about it, they're lying. Like it's, you just become an awful human being. Like you just, um, you're selfish. Was there a moment that was like the crystallizing, like, oh yeah? Yeah, I mean, I was gonna kill myself. And then, really? you know, I did, oh yeah, yeah, but I didn't have the, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna say courage to do it. Like, I didn't have the, uh, I had a cat and I was, this is a funny thing where like, I actually had a, a baby cat. And I remember reading somewhere that if there's a dead body in an apartment, because I didn't have any friends too, so my body would have stayed in the apartment for maybe weeks and nobody would have discovered had I, I paid my rent. And I was like, apparently dogs won't eat you, but cats will eat you. <laughs> they will eat your body if they run out of food. And I was like, wow, like I don't want my poor cat to like. <laughs> Jesus. You know what I mean? And so I was like, so that was the moment where I Are was like. Are you telling me that if you didn't have a cat in your house, you maybe, would have killed yourself. Maybe. I mean, that could have been a ruse. But I did wake up the next morning, and I had a friend who'd been sober for a million years, and I called him, and I was like, hey, man, like, you know, uh, you know, my life's in trouble. And he was like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, no, 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 man. It's like, it's like I just need it's a new like girlfriend. That. No, I need a girlfriend. He was like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, no, 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 man. I just need a new job. I, if I get a job. And he's like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, no, man, it's the jelly donuts. Like, I got to stop eating the jelly donuts, and then I'll be fine. He was like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, maybe I'll get sober. <laughs> and it just like, and it just broke, and I went to a meeting, and then like, and then like, it is that thing where it's just, you know, your life just changes, and people are nice to you finally when like no one's been nice to you. You've li lived in a world like, like the drinking world and the kind of druggy world that I was in, just like everybody's miserable and they're all mean to each other yeah. constantly. You're just nasty all the time. And then you like go to a meeting and people are like, hey man, like, and you're like, just so, it's so confusingly wonderful. Yeah. Um, I hit a bottom of like just being the worst guy. Ugh. And then finally I, you know, was sick of it and I had to climb out and like, you know, do all the things. When I hear stories, similar to that, I always wonder what hole or what 
message or what self-image was allowed to fester for so long without any help or without any sort of the right kind of care to heal that. Oh, yeah. And it makes me think of your SAG speech. Mm. And for people who didn't see this, Stranger Things won an ensemble award and you gave the speech. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the most inspiring speech I've ever seen in terms of being an artist. That's nice. And it was like a steamroll, this speech. It, it, it started gaining momentum and you realized as it was happening that this was sort of a manifesto of yours. Was, you know what I mean? Like this was not a, uh, this was not just a uh, off the cuff thing. This was something yeah, yeah. you'd thought about. This is a speech you've been waiting to make for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, and and the gist was great acting can save the world and it can cultivate right. empathy and it can bring people along who felt um, like an outcast or like an other. And, yes. and I wonder if this was the speech you wish you had heard as a kid. Yeah. There's another speech that if I win a solo award, I really want to give. But I, can't I wait. But I, uh, you know, I don't like to think of myself as a celebrity, but I, I guess I am. Like, there's a lot of things that I wish I'd heard from artists growing up, and that was one of them. So in that way, like, yeah, I want to embrace the power of that moment to really speak to, you know, people in the middle of the country that feel disenfranchised or people in other parts of the world that feel disenfranchised and being like, you know, being like, I want to tell stories that are like literally help you. I want to make you feel things that can heal you because our beliefs can heal us in a certain way. And so, yeah, there's, there's tremendous power and opportunity in that. And that was sort of the first moment of that where it was like, oh yeah, I can, you know, I can make this award show not, not exactly about us, like about us in a certain way saying like, guys like the SAG members we need to eliminate our narcissism and sort of embrace this storytelling and then in this way also say to people like we are your storytellers what this is what we want to create like the, uh, we're sort well, of elected. the responsibility you talk about that's the like responsibility. The, not, not what you're right like we are the elected officials here like this is what I want to bring to this world like is it can we get behind this? But there was a much more personal narrative also that I felt when I watched you do it, which was almost like, you know, God, if only my parents had sat me down and, and said something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, and that, that to me is the specific, the, the singular speech, which you, you might hear more. But and, and even in terms of my other thing, like, I guess I'm an ambassador for the angry monsters out there. Like, I'm the secret agent who's like, if you're, you know, if you're a monster, if you think you're a monster, if you're angry, and I want, I want you to know that, like, I've, I, I, I get it. Like, I'm angry, too. I get it. The world is unfair. People are awful. It is, it is a painful trip in general because we all are conscious of our own death. It fucking sucks. And, like, you didn't ask for it. I want the monsters to come out of hiding and I want them to know that like there's a place in the arts for you, the outcasts, the true outcasts, I mean the people that want and I want those people to be included because I have felt that way. And you I have felt like felt, a true outcast. Yeah, and I have felt this way where it's like I've said things and done things where I've been truly shunned for those feelings. And I'm not a bad guy. I mean again, we're talking about the layers of my but like my what I believe myself to be. But I, I'm 
I'm worthy of a voice in society. I'm worthy of a cultural voice. It may not be the only cultural voice, and I don't want it to be the only cultural voice, but I'm worthy of that. And, and so are you. Like, because I've dealt with things even beyond the alcoholism in terms of like mental illness and things that have truly been um, somewhat um, confusing to society, to say the least. But I understand people that exist on the edges and I want to say, like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to turn to the dark side in the sense that, you know, you can become an artist. Like, you can just express it and you can channel it in a way that's, like, really interesting. And, like, we can, we can get something from it. And I guess that's really, you know, because I feel like as a kid growing up, I didn't hear enough of that. Like, I didn't hear enough of the darkness, or the darkness that I did hear was a kind of saccharine darkness, or a darkness that was palatable. So when you hit real darkness, yeah, you didn't chaos. have a roadmap at yeah, all? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, beyond, yeah. And not, not even sobriety. I mean, it's more like, you know, even beyond sobriety, there was true, true chaos. What I hear you saying is that you really, truly went up to the edge of, of something and looked over and managed to work yourself back and now here you are with this incredible opportunity and obligation and you can speak of it because because you went there i mean yeah, you're yeah, exactly. i mean you I, i've heard you talk about this before but you you were in a committed mental facility for yeah, yeah. a period of time and yeah. what i what i hear you saying is that like you got really close to not being here and somehow made it back and and you came back with like i don't know some sort of a message uh, of of hope for other people who are there in a weird way. I mean, that's the thing where it's like I'm getting more, you know, comfortable sort of being able to talk about that. And I, as like I'm I'm writing this book kind of about it now, and I I want to because I want to be able to get into a more nuanced conversation about the actual complexities of that, which is hard in this soundbite generation. Sure. Because people just want it to be an easy thing, and it's just not an easy thing. Like I think there's a lot of voices that are really cool that are coming out. And I think what I can offer is just this idea of, like, um, it's okay. Like, I think that it's okay to feel these awful, strange things. You're just a human being. And, like, let's just stop all this, like, pretense that we are inherently perfect or good or something. Let's try to allow people a process of, of transformation. Like I've been allowed a process to be able to exercise these demons and these things inside of myself and take those demons. And, you know, Nietzsche, I think, was said that either the demons will destroy you or they will become the best parts of you. So, like, there right. has to be this transformative process where you let them out and then they become this beautiful tree as opposed to stuffing them down and then having them act out in violent ways. Well, what you're talking about is, is shame, really. It's like this idea that if you've conjured up some terrible thought, that makes you a bad person that's not acceptable to the other humans. But the very fact of being human was that your brain had the ability to construct that thought. Right. And so that must be a human thought, too. It goes to show you how anyone walking around, anyone we come in contact with, 
what a rich interior life we could discover if we didn't just look at the surface and and have our own narcissism or thinking about ourselves like it, yeah. it's yeah and the idea that what you just said about shame is like i guess that's the thing where i feel like i've been i'm an expert on shame like i feel like i i really have lived with a lot of shame and uh and i love uh I, lo- I love the idea of being able to connect with people on that level because I think it is such a, uh, it, it's a funny emotion because it's so horrible, shame, and also it's so touching. Like, I'm so touched by people that are ashamed. You're swallowing something about yourself because you um, don't want to hurt someone or something, or you feel like it's too much for someone. That's right. That there's a, uh, that's the, to me what shame is. And like, I think that's actually kind of a beautiful quality of a human being and I wish people could feel good about themselves and they don't have to feel the shame like i love people that are great people too but like it's not always going to be an inspirational oprah podcast like it's <laughs> it's not you know what i mean like life's not always going to be that way sometimes it's just going to be tortured dreck meaningless chaotic stuff that we just have to sit down and like it's not going to feel good and i and i you know i i sort of want to be if I can, I kind of want to be the Oprah of that, where it may not be so inspirational at times, The Oprah of darkness. Yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> the Oprah of chaos. But just something where it's like people can feel that they could have a process around really the real difficult emotions that don't process well, as opposed to this idea that, like, you know, these sort of sanctioned things, even in AA, like gratitude and joy and things like that. And, but maybe that's why I'm so drawn to the show and to your character as well, is because I'm sensing some essential humanness that isn't so wrapped up in a bow and, and pretty, but, but it feels more uh, relatable than, than those things. You know, you said once, when you act, that's when you really get to live. Yeah. And I thought that's such an interesting thing, because you can make an argument that acting is the definition of pretending to be something, but yeah. what you're saying is that it's when you're most alive. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so I mean, it allows me to do things that I'm not able to do in normal life because of the law. The law, yeah. Because it allows me to feel things and, and express things to another human being that I'm too afraid to do in life. The great thing with acting is that it's not autobiographical, but it is personal. I remember Angelina Jolie saying something very early on in her career. I think around when she got famous around Gia, where people were really, paparazzi were really fascinated by her and everyone was trying to interview her. And, the, and she was like, if you want to get to know me, watch my movies. And I get that totally. It's weird to talk about, but it's like the archetype of me. It's the metaphor of me. It's the most me, me. Whereas like there's this other stuff that you won't get, which is like, you know, how I walk around or how I, you know, get my coffee or whatever. Like those are the things that, but in a way, those are the things that don't interest you about me. What interests you about me is this thing that I'm revealing and acting. And the, the thing that people do is they see that and they get really interested in the person, whereas what they should really just get interested in is the life. And then we get into the whole thing about character. Like, that really is me. It's like how I choose to spend my time. Right. Is probably more me than anything else. Well, it's the most conscious you are about the choices you're making yeah. is when you've put all of that work into that character. You're not, you're not thinking about when you get up and go get the paper and get it. You, you, yeah. Or like me watching Netflix late at night. Like, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> a little bit of drill. Yeah, like, that yeah. guy's not interesting yeah, at all. Exactly. <laughs> He's so not interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I can imagine those three or four months without work would have been torture for you. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I love to work. I mean, uh, people are so funny about being a workaholic in this country. But I'm like, if you're an artist, like, be a workaholic. Yeah. Like, what else is there to do? I mean, we could have coffee. We could chat with it. But, like, what else is there to talk about? It's who about? you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, listen, this is, I could talk to you for hours and I get a very clear sense of who you are and what you've put into your work and, and it's the reason I'm drawn to your work and it's it's just great to meet you. Yeah, you too. This is a lot of fun. I yeah. like this. Thanks for doing it. Cool. Thank you. Hey folks, that's our show. Boy, I enjoyed that one. I hope you did. It's really interesting when an actor is willing to go that deep into his own psyche to try to discover why he loves the things he loves and why he does the things he does. And I know I walked away from that conversation examining my own choices. If you haven't seen Stranger Things yet, well, you're in for a treat. Go to Netflix and watch the whole series. David is just incredible in it. You should also see Hellboy and go back and watch his performances in Revolutionary Road and The Newsroom, just to name a few. And if you ever get the chance to catch him on stage, I highly recommend it. I also highly recommend going straight to offcamera.com and finding out more about this very show you're listening to. Did you know we have made over 185 episodes of Off Camera and each one is a television show and a podcast? Well, here's how you can get more involved. First off, if you're new to the podcast, take a minute and subscribe. That way you'll never miss a show into your feed each week. While you're there, if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a rating and a review, that will help more people find the show. Now, if you want to see Off Camera, you can find us on DirecTV's Audience Network, Channel 239. We air every Monday and Wednesday night, all across the country. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also find us through our television subscription at offcamera.com. For just $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever made to watch on any device as many times as you'd like. It's a great deal and a great way to support the show. So if you haven't checked that out, give that a minute. But however you tune into Off Camera, we're happy that you do. This is a project that I love doing. I've done it for a while now, and I'm very grateful that the show goes around the world and can be listened to and watched and heard by so many people. If you like what we're doing, I just ask you to spread the word for us. Go on social media, tell people about Off Camera. You can find us at Off Camera Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. So don't be shy. Tell the world about Off Camera if you love us. Specifically, if you do love us, it's because of these fine people that I'm about to tell you about that work on this show every week. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. Everyone in this office works hard every week to bring you this show. So thank you to everyone on our staff for helping us out. And as you know, because you've just listened to this podcast, we also have sponsors that help us bring you this show each week. So if any of our sponsors sound intriguing to you or spark your curiosity, take a minute and go visit them, see their sites, try their products, enter the off-camera codes, support the sponsors that are supporting off-camera, because I believe in all of them and they help us bring this show on the air. And most importantly, be sure to join us next time when I sit down with actress, author, screenwriter, and talk show host, Busy Phillips. 
you know, I talk in my book too about like my own body things and Hollywood, but I try to be very aware of not talking about my body or other women's bodies in my house. I have still have friends, feminists, you know, strong women who will be, you know, in the summer at my house and they'll be like, oh, I can't put on a bikini. It's like, fuck off. Yes, you can. Right, right. And all of our children are watching. And what do you think that they, th- when their hero, the woman they look up to the most, these little kids are like, oh, my mom can't put on a bikini. And I remember all that messaging as a little girl. You know, my mom's like, constant trips to Weight Watchers. And I failed another diet. And like, just the things she would say to her friends when they run into right. each other at the grocery store. Like, that kind of talk. That's the stuff that, like, worms its way into children's brains and causes them to have all the things. Busy is one of my favorite people, but until I read her memoir, This Will Only Hurt a Little, I realized just how little I knew of the turmoil and turbulence of her acting career. After getting her start at age 19 in the seminal, short-lived, and ahead-of-its-time TV series Freaks and Geeks, Busy was soon an in-demand television actress who quickly learned the unspoken rules for women in the business, such as dealing with sexual harassment, body shaming, and inequality on so many levels that it began to chip away at her passion for the craft itself. In our intimate and heartfelt conversation, Busy describes how hard it was to silence her own self-critic and find her voice and place in the world. With the creation of her own talk show, Busy Tonight, and a dedicated and loyal Instagram following, Busy is finally doing things her way. See you next time, off camera.